This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Sarah's Alice, and the author, Joe Wharton Heath. And Joe joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Joe. Hi, Steve. I'm going to read what you've written, just a few uh, statements about your book, kind of set the stage. Okay. You say this, when Sarah runs away from her husband Joseph, her world explodes into one of liberation and fear. She has no friends, no family, and almost no money, but her spunk, ingenuity, and deep need for freedom might be enough. Though she takes on a new name and travels far away, she often reminds herself that she is safe from Joseph, that he will not find her and exact his own special punishment. So a very domineering husband, uh, even a pastor, right? Yes, yes, he's a preacher. Let's start out with a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into why you wrote this. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I I don't want to say much. Um, I'm a Southern writer, and uh, and the book, Sarah's Alice, is a Southern novel. It's it's set primarily in Auburn, Auburn, Alabama, and in Lafayette, Louisiana. Uh, I've lived in both of those cities. So for those people who live there, it will seem, that part will seem authentic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and what was the motivation? Okay, what made, uh, well, uh, as you probably know, there there are many Baptists in the South, and one faction, the Southern Baptist Convention, declares, and I have written down here a direct quote from their official webpage, quote, A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership of her husband, unquote. Uh, My story addresses how bad this tenet is. (laughs) Sarah's Alice, uh, I wrote it to to bring home, um, by way of fiction, how ridiculous and harmful that Southern Baptist Convention rule can be. That that was the impetus uh, when I began the, the book. So you have uh, seen this? Sure. Anybody that lives in the South has seen this. Okay. All right. And so it's going on today. Oh, yeah. Of course. I mean, not a, perhaps it shouldn't be, of course. <laughs> right. But yes, it is. Okay. Well, obviously, uh, like you just said, one of the major themes is religion in America and in the South and in the Southern Baptist Convention in this practice. Yes. So Sarah, her husband Joseph, the pastor, Sarah basically lives in fear of her husband. Oh, that's how the story starts, yes. And she is doing everything she can to, at least at the beginning, it sounds like she has been waiting for this moment to escape. Um, it's not clear that that's, that she has been planning this. It's a bit impromptu. Okay. So not she hasn't really thought through 
all what's on the other side of escaping, I guess. No, no, not at all. In fact, it starts it starts at a truck stop. They're on the road, and uh, and Sarah's there eating lunch with her husband, the preacher husband, uh, and she is a wife who submits graciously to her husband. Frankly, she's afraid of him, and she's not much of a woman, actually, not much of a person. Uh, everything, everything about her appearance, her actions, uh, represents uh, jo- represent Joseph, not her. Uh, on the other hand, she's been her whole life. She's been buffeted by the opinions and rules of others. She's a uh, she's a captive person at this point. Uh, anyway, at, at, after lunch, a couple of things happen that are uh, inspiring or something. Uh, after lunch, her, her husband, uh, Joseph, he throws his wallet on the table. He tells Sarah what to pay for the sandwiches, as if she didn't know she'd seen the menu, uh, and how much tip exactly to leave, and it's a small one. Uh, and then he goes off to the to the bathroom, okay? In the meantime, all along, she's been watching this guy at another table, and uh when he gets up to leave, he throws a $20 bill on the table, and all he had was a sandwich and a cup of coffee. And then when he leaves, she's thinking, boy, he is so different from, jo- from Joseph. And she sees the, dar- the door is ajar. And I think that's when she gets the idea, I'm going to go. I'm going to ask him. And that's what she does. She bolts. She goes outside. She asks this man. who She doesn't even know his name. Nor he hers. Oh, she doesn't know anything about him. She doesn't know anything about him. And she says, please take me with you, and he does. So things are that bad with her that she would just obviously just put her life in the hands of a stranger. That's right. And and as you say, she had no money and no friends. Her husband had made sure that she had uh, no friends of her own. And uh, she did have uh, about, uh, I calculated it once, about $90 in Joseph's wallet. She had that. He he had left the wallet with her. So she had a little bit of money, but not much. And uh, that's when her that's when her adventures began when she's free of Joseph now. And uh well Sarah's Sarah's mind just loves this liberation and she's she starts to listen to her own ideas, her own uh observations instead of listening to other people about what she should be thinking. Um, she grows, and she has, a little later on, she has two new friends. The one is, uh, uh, actually is my favorite character in the book, except maybe for Sarah, uh, Cyrus Bailey, uh, who's a, a sort of a pseudo-lawyer, and he teaches, he teaches her street smarts, and uh, he, he's a great guy. I think then, I think before we go on, we got to make sure that everybody understands. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. No, there, no, no. Go ahead. But uh, really understand that this isn't a situation where she just doesn't like the way he he handles her life. Uh, he's abusive. Oh yes. Uh, I mean, yes. right at the beginning, we learn that this guy is uh, a very he he's a sadist. I guess isn't he? he is. that, yeah. Yes, uh, he, he's a sadist, and and, and, and he does things to her that where it, so nobody will ever see it. That's right. Yeah, he he. Uh, she has a flashback uh, right uh, not too long after she uh, catches this ride, and and then the reader learns just how horrible her husband is and why she's so afraid of him. Right. 
Exactly. So yes. so it's much more than just not being told what to do. Oh, this is true, yes. Yeah. Uh, this that's is, this good, is a very really very, very bad situation, dangerous situation dangerous for her. Situation Who for knows her. what this man is capable of? That's right. So go ahead. Tell us, you were talking about uh, uh, Cy. No, I, just, I had just introduced Cy. And another, another character, that uh, these are later in the book, uh, uh, this old man, uh, Benjamin Guidry, he's, he's uh, bedridden, and she likes to read to him from Tom Jones uh, on, in the evening. But what she really loves uh, her conversations with Benjamin. He, he, he gives her perspectives on life that she'd never been exposed to before, never been allowed. Uh, these, these new thoughts, new thoughts are very addictive. The, the book, that, that's, that's Sarah. The book actually alternates between Sarah and Joseph. Uh, Joseph's point of view is, is carried through the book uh, here and there, you know. Uh, yeah, you call him the X-rated preacher. I guess that's the best way to sum him up. <laughs> yes, he, he's uh, <laughs> uh, yes, he, he has uh, a strong appetite. Yes, and as he slowly descends into hell, <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> so this man is a character, <laughs> to he say is the a least. Real character. Well, uh, Joseph has a special gift. Uh, if he wants to do, let's say something of dubious morality. All he has to do is think about it for a while before he, quote, realizes, unquote, that God wants him to, no, no, that God demands he do this. Demands. Demands. Yeah. He's genuinely confident uh, that uh, for everything that he does, God has ordered him to do it, including beginning a, a real affair, that's the X-rated part you were talking about, a real affair with a mistress. This affair started a year before Sarah ran away, and he was absolutely convinced that God had ordered him to do that. Um, if, if you have listened to many Southern preachers, you'll hear a bit of their wishful thinking being interpreted as God's orders. That's probably the most dangerous person that believes God is ordering him or her to do whatever. That's exact. That's exactly because right. Because they can rationalize anything. Then he, uh, Joseph, can rationalize anything. Right. This sounds like a movie. <laughs> who's 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 uh, Joseph? Who's Joseph? Who would you, who would be casted? Who's the actor? Um, gee, it has to be someone that can really look dark when he wants to. <laughs> uh, who would that be? How about Tommy Lee Jones? Oh, you know, he would be perfect. And who yeah. would be and who would be Sarah? Uh, it has to be someone um somewhat innocent. I haven't got a clue on that one. Maybe Witherspoon. Ah. Okay. Or maybe she's too innocent. Well, no, well maybe. I don't know, but this this uh plot unfortunately is too real, correct? <laughs> Well, I wanted it to be. I didn't want it to be just fanciful, and people right. wouldn't uh, uh, learn from it. I so, want people so, to learn from so it. So she, yeah. al- she also, uh, along the way, meets Hammer. Oh, Hammer! Yes, so this she's on a she's a pseudo uh, uh, detective. She learned this from Sai uh, Sai Bailey, and Hammer is a boyfriend, and she's trying to uh, get into this fraternity to learn about uh, some drug 
activity that's going on there. And Sai is to be her boyfriend, and it's kind of the first boyfriend she's ever had, not counting Joseph's courtship of her, which was very formal. Uh, Hammer's fun. He um, He's sort of a guy who, who never says much. <laughs> and the, the way she picked him out for the person to choose for the boyfriend was to look at the uh, fraternity pictures in the in the yearbook and pick out the the man least likely to have a girlfriend and it worked yeah hammer's great and of course then there's also carlton and then there's carlton now he's he's the son of the president he's the one in the drug activity and he's a real uh womanizer um uh light-hearted womanizer carlton's fun too but it's quite different from hammer yeah she meets she meets a number of the fraternity and on one of her cases, her most important case. All of this is, uh, she's far away from Joseph. She's still hiding from Joseph all this time, and she she thinks about Joseph and, and tries to talk herself into believing that she's done everything she needs in the way of uh, not ever giving anybody her Social Security number, all sorts of things that she's done that he can't possibly find her. And she changes her name to Alice. Why? Yes, she changes her name to Alice. Uh, well, of course, that was so make it more difficult for Joseph right. to find her. But the main purpose of her invention, Alice, was to change her persona. She made a conscious effort. This was very early in her uh, freedom to change from Sarah. The Sarah was sort of the trembling, pitiful excuse of a woman in the long brown dress uh, to with her hair in a bun. With her hair in a bun to Alice with her hair down. And she's a gutsy woman in the pink T-shirt and, and jeans. And jeans. Right. And, and so she forces herself into this new persona because that's what she wants. She does not want to be trembling Sarah. So, th- so throughout the book, we're probably wondering any moment Joseph is going to catch up with her. Yes, and of course, uh, uh, the experienced reader knows that that is going to happen. But by the end of the book, uh, Joseph is an angry man and physically stronger, of course, than Sarah. Right. But Sarah is now in charge of her own life. Mm. Everything has changed. Well, I know right at the beginning where she now has escaped and now the truck drivers let her out and she's kind of in a some kind of a store or somewhere and then she hears the police sirens. I could just... See yes. that scene that would she would just panic thinking she panicked. Yeah, Joseph has sent the police after her already. That's right. Cuz he uh-huh. cuz she took his money. She stole his money. Yeah, his wallet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the fact that, you know, he n- now has no one to uh, control. Uh, that's right. Yes. yes. And, and no no one to clean up the house and no one to cook his dinner. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and do yeah. all the stuff that um he wanted done no matter what. Uh, so exactly. he, he's a, a very evil man, and she's been, well, she has felt ugly and stupid, right? Well, she hasn't, she hasn't been herself. Right. But now, uh, now she's Alice. Yeah, she, she didn't feel ugly so much as that with the clothes, she looked tired and worn out. Uh, yeah. And, but when she t- changes to Alice, as a crutch, her life just seriously picks up in, just, in every possible way. We've got time for one more comment. Okay. 
And I wanted to know, Joe, why your favorite poem is Invictus. Oh. <laughs> or, you know, and you often quote the last stanza to yourself. Yes. Uh, uh, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment my soul. I am the captain. I say, no, I am the captain. Anyway. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, if I weren't so nervous, I could have quoted it. <laughs> I'm sure you but could have. The, the point, that the thing I like about that poem is that that's a person in control of their own life. They, they can't control everything that happens to them, but they are in control of how they react to it. They they are in charge of their own life. Right. I think that everyone should be in charge of their own life. The title of the book, Sarah's Alice, and the author is Joe Wharton Heath. Joe, tell us how to get your book. Oh, well, it, it, uh, you can get it at iUniverse. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble. There's a number of uh, Internet places. Um, it's easy to get the book. Thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much, Steve. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intracastle and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Revelation of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And the author is Moshe ben Yosef Halavi. Welcome, Moshe. We appreciate you being with us on iUniverse Radio. Good morning. First of all, I want to read a couple of things that you have written. Uh, you say, 
Revelation of the Bible, the book of Genesis, is the first volume in a series on biblical revelations offering timely insights into the world and revealing the prophecies of Jacob. You will, yeah. you will explore in your book, you explore the creation from both scientific and biblical perspectives. And then you also look at and you examine the secrets of creation and the meaning of life, the location of the Garden of Eden, the story of Adam and Eve, and much, much more. Moshe, tell us about your background. It's very scientific. Well, I, uh, I was born in Baghdad to, a, to the, the Jews of, of Babylonia. I was, was exiled by King Nebuchadnezzar 2,500 years ago. Uh, my parents and all the Jews of, of Baghdad moved to Israel in 1951. So I grew up in Israel and uh, went to, uh, of course, the Israeli army and then to the Technion in Israel. From there, I got married to an American Jewish woman and moved to the United States, where I went to uh, the University of Delaware, the University of uh, Pennsylvania, and, uh, and RPI, where I got my BSWE, MSWE, and MBA in those schools. And uh, uh, as far as scientific background concerned, I worked in the field of integrated circuits and electronics for 29 years, from basically being an engineer uh, all the way to the CEO of my own company that I established, and uh, vice president of engineering, VP of R&D, and collected on the way about 48 in that field. Well, let's start out with talking about uh, your motivation to do this. Uh, why did you feel you needed to publish your book. I had the, the, the background that I have from the, from the Jews of, of uh, Babylonia, which are the one who composed the, the Old Testament. That was one motivation. The other one is the scientific background that I acquired over, over the years and my interest in finding out the connection between the stories of the Bible and the science uh, of today. And it turns out to be uh, once I sat down and, and, and examined it, this has been nagging me for, for the last 20, 30 years. But in the last 10 years, I really had the time to uh, dedicate to it and really, uh, so to speak, dig into it in depth. What I found was that the most advanced science that we have today, from Einstein theory to quantum physics and mechanics to the string theory that we have today, uh, and and the description of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are one and the same. They are one-to-one. One. They are not opposite at all. They are absolutely complementary to each other. And Genesis is describing completely, in my opinion, the, the science of today and vice versa. The science of today describes what, what Genesis is saying. So those two, those two chapters are extremely important. And indeed, they are, you know, describing each other. And you studied these in the original language. Correct. I, I, uh, I, I speak Arabic. I speak uh, uh, and read, of course, uh, Arabic and Hebrew and Aramaic. And I found out that the only version and the only way to really understand it is in the Hebrew text. And one must not only read the words as a story, but one needs to understand and look into it uh, as a letter by letter. Uh, for example, I'll just give you one example here. Uh, the first, one of the first sentences that, that uh, is described in, the, in Genesis 
is the word that in English says, let there be light. But in Hebrew, it is, it is yehi or. But the, the, those two are two, letter, two words. The first one is made from three letters, yud, he, yud. And the second word is or. Or is light. The first letter, uh, first uh, word, however, is yud, he, yud is indeed uh, made up from two, two words. One is Yah, and the other one is Yud, meaning God, Yah, and then Ten. And it so happened that that sentence is telling us that the light of God has gone or expanded into the Ten dimension of the universe, which we know today from science. So science has been telling us in the last 15 years or so, that or more, uh, but probably the last 20 years, more and more uh, intense in the last 15, that the universe has expanded into 10 dimensions from its original uh, Big Bang. And the Bible, the first sentence, is telling us the same thing, one-to-one. And well, this description is in the, in the book, your book that, I, that I have been written, that I have written. Your book is very comprehensive, and we obviously don't have the time to go into but a small segment of all your findings and all your beliefs uh, from your scientific point of view. But let's start with the creation of something from nothingness. That's correct. Steve, this is, a, this, this is the basic concept. And that is where, the, where, where most, most people, I would say, uh, have never really understood that notion of nothingness. Nothingness is, is uh, to create something from nothing uh, just to define nothing or nothingness is just pretty much impossible. What can be done is explained, this concept can be explained only in terms of analogy. And the explanation of it is in the book. But uh, it is, it, 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 it's, so, it's so simple. And because it's simple, uh, uh, we humans have, have had a hard time, in fact, understanding it. As I as I think uh, we, we spoke before, I told you that, that the, the notion of nothingness or the one has been, uh, has been sought after by, by the Zen priests of uh, China, the yogis of India, the Essenes of Israel, that, that some of them, about 150 of them, lived in the village of Qumran, uh, the Christian saints, the showmen of, of um, uh, you know, uh, North America and so forth. All of them, and in fact, all the way to today, people have been looking to connect with this concept called the one or the nothingness, and they do it through all kinds of, of means. Most of them thought that the, the torturing of the body and the exhaustion of the body or the deprivation of the body from all five senses will get them there. That included Buddha at the year 480 B.C., and it turns out to be that none of those methods is correct. Uh, the notion of nothingness is very, very simple. In my opinion, 10 years old can understand it. And because of its simplicity, people just could not, being, people being complex beings, could not really understand it. Uh, it, it, it. It's too simple, in fact. So I am describing that uh, in the book in absolute detail, which I can't really do it uh, in this interview because of the, of the short, short of time. Right. Um, 
I think once people understand that, everything else falls, falls from that. The creation, uh, the act of creation is understood clearly and easily. The expansion of the universe into ten dimensions understood also and explained in detail. And from there, how the earth was made out of the, out of the uh, numerous uh, galaxies and, 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 and uh, bodily heavens. And, and I'm going through the six days of creation. In other words, how planet Earth was actually made. And, and explaining each day and, and, and what happened exactly. Now, it turns out to be that the science, as I said, and the description in Genesis is, again, I must emphasize, is absolutely one-to-one. And one can understand it, as I said, by reading the book. I can't elaborate on it in this, in this interview because it's just not enough time. One of the aspects of your book that you say is very controversial is that we were made by an advanced uh, beings we call angels. That's correct. Uh, it is my opinion, and it's, the the Bible is not hiding anything. In fact, it's right in front of our. Uh, it's in front of us, as it always has been. Uh, its description is is unbelievable because it really tells us point blank what happened. And we chose to ignore it or hide it or change it or whatever you want to call it. But the, um, the fact is very simple. It says basically that there is a creator who created the universe out of nothing through a spark that ignited this, this dimension, if you wish, or the universe of nothingness, which in a, in a most simplest way, uh, it is a, 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 a universe of absolute uniformity. That's why it is nothingness. Once that happened, uh, the creation as we know it, the expansion of the universe and all, all the galaxies and matters within it have come to be. Each state of existence is literally that. Ten dimensions, therefore each one is different state of existence. Matter is one, one, one state, for example. Uh, atomic structure is another. Molecular structure, atomic structure, the, the, uh, the proton, the quarks, uh, the three forces, and so forth. All of them are different states of existence, and they exist in their own uh, realm, so to speak. Now, within that universe, I believe they were created or evolved, if you wish, beings which I call advanced beings or beings of light, if you wish. We call those beings angels, but they are absolutely a being in this universe, and they are the one who made us. In other words, what they made is something from something, not something from nothing. So they have created, or, or let's say call it terraformed the earth, because it already existed, and they made us from a, I believe, a genetic code of some very similar to theirs, because the Bible says that we were made in their image, meaning like a picture. In other words, we look like them exactly. And in their character, which means, you know, there are many passages in the Bible that says God uh, is jealous, God is angry, God this and God that and so forth. Uh, God smells. Uh, the aroma, for example, of, of the sacrifice, etc. So we were made like them, exactly. 
I believe, therefore, that those are beings that exist in the universe on some, some level, with, I believe, they have advanced technology, uh, enormous advanced, advanced technology, and it shows, it shows in the fact that they can terraform planets and they can, they can convert, they can convert matter, uh, of course, into energy like we, we can, and energy back into matter, which is the, the second, the, the, the other side of Einstein equation, E equal mc squared. The proof of that is in, uh, in uh, uh, Exodus, when basically the staff of Moses was converted from a carbon-made uh, staff, wood staff that he used to shepherd the, the sheep, uh, into a cobra snake. And in my opinion, that was done in about 150 milliseconds, where, where the, the uh, matter was converted to energy, was converted back into a double helix, with all the systems of the snake, and then it was kicked into life. And it was done in 150 milliseconds, in my opinion. That requires technology at very, very advanced. So that's one. The other one is, of course, the creation, or the making, if you wish, of Eve as a clone from the ribs of Adam that was basically, they put him to sleep because they were going to uh, perform an operation on him. And they took the bones. Within the bones, you have the bone marrow. Within the bone marrow, you have the stem cells, which can be programmed to grow a woman, a female woman. And they took it away, took this bone away, grew the meat, so to speak. In other words, they grew Eve into a full uh, figure, and then they brought it back to Adam. And he says, this time she is a bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh, and she will be the mother of all living things. In other words, implying there was another creation before her, and indeed it was. Well, we'd love to uh, talk for hours with you, Moshe. There's, there, you're very interesting. You obviously uh, have an incredible scientific background and a very uh, insightful religious background, but we only have a little bit of time left, so give us a closing thought. Well, I think that, that the, the creation, as I said, the creation and, and the, the book of, of Genesis and uh, Exodus, they are one, in my opinion, describes the creation of the universe and all that has been in it, uh, including including the the uh, uh, the planet Earth and the living uh, animals and, and and life and atoms and so forth. I believe that those beings have been guiding us throughout our history, and they still are. So uh, I find that to be extremely interesting uh, uh, and and enlightening. Uh, to, in, in understanding the genesis and, and, and the science today. I came to, to conclude that they are both one and the same. That is the point. Well, Moshe, tell us how to get your book, Revelation of the Bible, the Book of Genesis. Well, uh, it's all over the Internet. All, all anybody wants to need to do is basically, uh, you know, enter the, uh, the title, Revelation of the Bible, the Book of Genesis, and it is sold by many, many outlets. Uh, iUniverse has it, and uh, Amazons and Diesels and uh, Borders uh, and, and many, many others. Barn and Noble, uh, many, many outlets that carry it, but one can, can order it directly from the, uh, from the Internet or from iUniverse. Well, thank you, Moshe. Thank you for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much, Steve.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, Choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central, on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central, on the mom to mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book the Ensign Locker. And the author is J.J. Zare, and Jack joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jack. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Uh, we're going to talk about this, well, it's uh, a bit of a controversy over the Vietnam War at the same time. It deals with uh, your strong feelings about what you can do for your country, right? Uh, yes, that I think wrapped up in the book. Well, let me read a couple of things you've written. You say this, Following Desert Storm, I saw the welcome home the troops received from that war. This was in stark contrast to how servicemen and women were treated in the late 60s and early 70s. The Ensign Locker tells the story of a young man who comes to believe it is more important to battle the strident anti-establishment voices across the country that it is to battle the North Vietnamese. To battle those voices, he chooses to stay in the military and serve in the unpopular war. Well, we all remember the sad part of history of how we treated our soldiers come, coming home from Vietnam, and um, I'm really sorry uh, that uh, that all happened. I guess you felt that, didn't you? I did. Um, I, I guess I would say at the same time, Though, um, you know, one of the things this country stands for, and I mean, it's supposed to be government of the people, and the people have to be able to voice how they're thinking and feeling about things. 
the unfortunate part about the way a number of young people were feeling in those days is they chose to take out some of their frustrations about the way things were going on the military. Um, and in most cases, at least in my mind, the military were there um, trying to provide a service to the country. Um, and um, it, it just was a traumatic thing to feel like you were providing a service and then come home and, and quite frankly, the people you were trying to serve pretty much threw it back in your face. Um, so it was, it was a traumatic time um, in the country. I mean, for me individually, but I think for the country as well. For everyone's information, Jack served 36 years in the Navy, and between 1966 and 72, he completed three deployments to Vietnam, and he was on a destroyer, and he had a, two deployments on an aircraft carrier from which he flew 330 combat missions. And my goodness, we uh, it's most of us are overwhelmed by that kind of service, Jack. Thank you so much for your devotion to this country. Well, <laughs> hearing you say that, um, you know, it, it means a lot. Thank you. Now, you heard JFK say, ask what you can do for your country, not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Tell us uh, how you felt when you first heard that. Well, quite frankly, it sounded to me sort of like something coming from a communist nation. You know, put the state first. Um, that's really what I thought originally. Um, and when I was a young man, I grew up in a small town in Missouri. My ambition was to get out of my small town, um, uh, get to college, get a good job, have a family. That was my ambition. I, I was looking for the country to provide me the wherewithal to, to realize my ambition. To pursue my happiness, if you will. Um, and it took um, the Vietnam experience and coming home from my first deployment to Vietnam for that JFK message to really kind of strike home that um, the, the wherewithal to to um, pursue happiness isn't just kind of laying out there waiting for for everyone to go and get it. Some people have to make sacrifices to make sure that that continues um, to be available for future generations. I guess um, it, and it didn't it didn't occur to me. It didn't. Um, JFK's message didn't resonate with me until I really saw not necessarily the combat experiences, but the the protest, and a lot of the protests really seemed to be anti-establishment more than anti-war, and and I took that to be pretty much a threat 
to the kind of life I was looking for for myself and, and hopefully my family. The main character, John Zachary, is uh, based on uh, a lot of your thinking. Well, uh, quite frankly, I, I think most writers would say that every character in the book has some kind of a piece of the author in them. But yes, I would say John Zachary has um, has a fair amount of um, Jack's error in him. Um, the um, and 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 I would say more than that, though. It, it's it, it's maybe what Jack Zare would like to be in some cases, and um, there are also cases where um, um, there are things that Jack Zare did, and some of the things John Zachary did that you know if he had a life to live over again, he'd probably do them a little differently. So all of that is in there. Now, Zachary, you say, learns about courage from one of his roommates in the uh, ensign locker before the ship enters the combat zone. What happened there? Um, so the ensign locker is the place on the ship where the five junior officers live. And the senior man in the ensign locker is the officer responsible for some radio-controlled drone helicopters the ship had aboard, and the helicopters were designed to be um, uh, driven off the side of the ship uh, out to, say, five or ten miles, where uh, you had located an enemy submarine, and the helicopters could drop a, a torpedo on the enemy submarine. Well, these helicopters, being radio-controlled drones, back in those days, the technology was um, not quite as mature as it should have been. There were significant reliabilities with those helicopters. And every once in a while, one would go a little berserk. And in the incident in the book, this radio-controlled helicopter... Um, does go berserk when John Zachary and his one of one of his roommates from the ensign locker are trying to do a maintenance ground turn on this helicopter on the helicopter deck on the back end of the ship, and um, <clears throat> John Zachary sees this helicopter that it has um, counter rotating blades and a main rotor blade, so it didn't need a tail rotor. And when those blades start flopping around, they can bash together. And it flings, uh, when that happens, it'll fling um, blade shrapnel over a long, long distance. Well, Zachary and his roommate are standing maybe 15 feet from the helicopter, so they would have been almost certainly uh, killed if that thing had um, continued to go berserk and, and the blades had come together. Well, Zachary feels like he ought to just get as low onto the deck as he can squeeze himself. But his roommate stands at the control console and continues to try and get the thing under control. And since the roommate didn't get down on the deck, Zachary stays with him. And um, between the two of them, 
they eventually figure out how to get that thing under control. So Zachary, um, in in the story, Zachary really learns a, a lesson about um, courage from witnessing his roommate manage this um, uh, helicopter that's gone berserk. Now, you call one of Zachary's uh, ensign locker roommates a rabid anti-war individual. Does Zachary really uh, have confrontations with him? Yes, there are a couple of places where um, confrontations with this anti-war-oriented individual occur um, uh, in the story. Well, it doesn't seem possible that someone like that would uh, last too long in the Navy. Um. In the, uh, that particular point in time, um, especially in, in the active duty ranks, um, you really didn't see that much in terms of anti-war-oriented people. And the ones who were there were pretty quiet about it. And quite frankly, that's the way this anti-war-oriented um, individual in the story begins um he is quiet about his feelings and his nickname is dormant for another reason but uh, he spends a lot of time in bed he's really not a career more motivated individual but dormant also implies the way he um uh contains his anti-war oriented feelings um, until certain things happen in the book and um, and and his true feelings uh, become apparent. Now Zachary also uh, when he I guess uh, d- during a visit when the ship returns to San Diego he gets into quite a conflict with uh, some college students who are opposed to the US involve- involvement in Vietnam. Right. And quite frankly, this is is really um, a, a dramatic incident in Zachary's life. He has had no ambitions to make the Navy um, a career. He intends to spend, he, he has gotten an education from the Navy, and he owes the Navy service. But as soon as he pays back the service he owes them for the education, Zachary's intention was to get out and become a normal person. Um, But his encounter with these anti-war-oriented college kids makes him really pay attention to the stories that appear on TV, to the stories that appear in the paper about all the protests. And that's when Zachary... Uh, comes to the conclusion that a lot of the protest is really anti-establishment as much or more than it is anti-war. And Zachary then decides he needs to do something um, to counter the anti-establishment protest, and what he decides to do is to stay in the service himself and a volunteer for service wherever the government needs him most. 
We have time for uh, one more comment from you. I find it interesting in uh, some things you've written that you say Vietnam was not an unusually immoral, messy, or wrong war. All our wars have been messy, filled with blunders that cause needless casualties and also atrocities that make you ashamed. Uh, sometimes we just kind of think of the general uh, view of things, you know, just Vietnam was bad. That was bad, and like all other wars are okay, and nothing bad happens. Um, I do believe that um, it's good that we don't get that much experience, you know, fighting wars. Um, and every time we get into a war, the people who have to fight it um, have many, many fundamental lessons to learn all over again. And mistakes are made. And people who manage to move up in ranks in a peacetime military service are not necessarily going to be able to function well in a combat setting. Um, some people are cut out for that business. Some people are able to develop the talents and outlooks on life you need to manage troops in combat, and some people will just never get it. Um, and unfortunately, you only find that out, you know, through um, some mistakes. And, and when these mistakes become intolerable, well, then those people are moved aside and and a new person has tried in the role of leader. Um, so, I mean, if you read, I mean, the history of the um, Revolutionary War, I mean, how we won the thing is incredible um, with, with the mistakes that were made and, and the professionalism of the British troops compared to the colonial militias. Um, at any rate, wars are just, they, no war is is clean and and um, so clean cut that that um, that um, you you don't have these you know blue on blue or atrocities. People, um, you know, we're taught to love one another and and to respect each other and in our churches and schools and um, and then you get thrown into war. And the fact that you have a My Lai incident every once in a while, I mean, uh, people just don't know how to handle all the power that's packed into an automatic um, M16 um, with hand grenades and grenade launchers. You got all this power, and on a battlefield, um, the only morality out there is the stuff that resides in the heads of each individual. And... When you're fighting for your life and scared as all get out, um, sometimes morality um, kind of takes a second second place to um, a whole bunch of other considerations. The title of the book, The Ensign Locker, and the author is J.J. Zare. Jack, tell us how to get your book. Okay, well, um, it is published by iUniverse. And uh, you can go to iUniverse.com and uh, find the book there. Uh, it is also available through Barnes & Noble and Amazon. And <clears throat> it is available in a hardcover, soft, and an ebook format.
Thanks, Jack, for being on iUniverse Radio. Thanks very much, Steve. I appreciate um, the time. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.